Good morning. <clears throat> so the book of Revelation is written, as we've covered, to seven churches in the province of Asia Minor, late in the first century A.D. John, the author of the text of Revelation, composed it likely as a circular letter that would be sent to these seven churches, and knowing full well, maybe expecting that the letter would then be shared with other congregations. There were more than seven churches. So he passed around. The number seven, as a reminder, is intended to represent the whole church. The number seven to ancient Hebrews was the number of completion or wholeness. So Revelation speaks to all times and all situations and all peoples because it speaks to the whole church. It was written to these seven churches. It was written to these seven churches. And it was written for us and every church in between them and us. Included in the circular letter of Revelation are seven brief prophetic statements or words that Jesus makes to each of the churches. I said last week, each of these prophetic words has five basic components. Once again, they are Christ, commendation, condemnation, challenge, and the conqueror's promise. Jesus opens the prophetic word to the church in Smyrna, once again using statements, phrases about himself that we've already encountered in chapter 1. Revelation 2, verse 8. <clears throat> to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, These are the words of him who is the first and last who died and came to life again. The first and last is the same description Jesus used in chapter 1, verse 18, where he was echoing God's words from uh, chapter 1, verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Same idea. Uh, beginning and end, Alpha and Omega, first and last. <clears throat> Jesus also is the one who died and came to life again, which of course refers to his resurrection. But we don't need to rush too quickly to the resurrection. We don't need to pass over the fact that, the, that he dies first. He dies first. That's intentional. He has gone before all who suffer persecution as the one who suffered first. He leads by example in doing so, and he calls upon the church in Smyrna to follow him. This is the Christ component, where Jesus identifies himself. These self-descriptions are intended to encourage the believers in Smyrna by identifying Jesus as God in the flesh. If, if Jesus is the first and last, and the Alpha and the Omega, and God is the first and last, and the Alpha and Omega, then Jesus is identifying himself as God. We are about to learn that the Christians in Smyrna were under attack. And when people are persecuted, uh, they need to be reminded <clears throat> that, like them, Jesus faced intense persecution, even to the point of death. Knowing that Christ suffered as they have and will, and that Christ was resurrected, gives them the strength, the hope that they need to endure. Because they know that even if they die, they too will rise again. Verse 9. Jesus says, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. When Jesus mentions their poverty, in all likelihood, he is talking about literal, material poverty. They are poor. Possibly because they have, if you remember last week we talked about uh, encouraging, uh, encouraging Christians not to eat the meat that was sacrificed to idols. Perhaps they have They've done that. They have chosen not to eat the meat sacrificed to idols. And in reality, if you did that, and you were uh, a businessman or a businesswoman, and you were supposed to be a part of a trade guild, you would not be allowed to be in that trade guild. 
You would not be allowed to be a part of that association, which would hurt the business that you had. So they have chosen to suffer in this sense, and they are perhaps poor because these things have contributed to their poverty. Commendation. This is the commendation section. Jesus identifies with them in their affliction, in their poverty. Even though they are poor, he says, they are rich. They are rich. How are they rich? Probably in the same way that the churches in Macedonia in, uh, were rich in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. The apostle writes of them that in the midst of very severe trial, their overflowing and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. Paul says that these Macedonian believers exceeded expectations in their financial gifts toward others in need. He uses their generosity, their richness, in a very literal sense, amid their poverty to inspire the Corinthian Christians to give as well. So he writes in verses 8 and 9 of 2 Corinthians chapter 8, I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others, the Macedonians. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. These Christians in Smyrna are persecuted and they are poor in about every way we might be able to imagine. But they are rich in faith, rich in generosity, and their spiritual wealth enables them to endure and to conquer. A couple of chapters before this, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 says something similar about himself and his own situation. As he's describing the suffering that he and his colleagues have endured, he flips this reality on its head. And he says in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 6 that he and his colleagues are known, yet regarded as unknown, dying, and yet we live on, beaten, and yet not killed, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, poor, yet making many rich, having nothing, and yet possessing everything. They too are rich. Then back in Revelation 2, Jesus speaks of a group of Jewish people who have slandered these believers for their faith. Christians in that setting were only interrogated about their faith, about their beliefs, if someone reported them. They didn't just go around looking and knocking on doors, but if somebody reported you, then you might be interrogated. And it's possible that people from this particular synagogue were doing just that. They were, they were ratting out these believers in Christ. So a new wave of persecution was headed their way. Now these Jewish people think they are faithful Jews, Jesus says, but they're not. Their very denial of Christ as God is blasphemous. They are part of, quote, a synagogue of Satan. Ouch. But this is more than just name-calling here. Satan means adversary. Another word used in this passage would be devil. That means the accuser. This particular synagogue is made up of people who think that they are behaving as God's faithful people and doing things the right way, but they are actually playing the role of Satan, the adversary and the accuser of these sisters and brothers in Christ when they report them to the Roman authorities. This is very strong language, but it was not anti-Semitic. This isn't about the Jews as a people group. It is about one community, uh, a church community in the city of Smyrna who were persecuting the church. Then something important happens. Jesus breaks the standard pattern for these, these prophetic words have in the book of Revelation of these five components. He should next 
call attention to something he has against them, a condemnation, but he doesn't. He skips it. And because one whole component in what Jesus has to say to them is missing, you all get a slightly shorter sermon. How about that? Jesus is pleased. The church is doing well. You get a shorter sermon. I call that a win-win-win situation. Everything they are doing in Smyrna, it would appear, is pleasing to Jesus. So he moves to the challenge he has for them. Verse 10. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I will tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you. And you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Something is coming down the pike. The devil will put some of them in prison, and they will suffer persecution for ten days. As the slander from this synagogue of Satan is ramping up, and along with it, the tension in the empire, Jesus warns them of a new wave of persecution. Some of them will be put in prison. But then he has this strange phrase, for ten days. For ten days. When Christians were accused of subversive ideas or acts, the government brought them in for interrogation. While they were waiting for interrogation, they were sometimes kept in prison cells. The 10 days is a way of referring to a short period of time, the way that you and I might say, oh, I'll get back to you in a week or so. But these 10 days may also be an allusion to the book of Daniel. As we know, John in Revelation is very fond of quoting or alluding to the Old Testament, especially the book of Daniel. And Daniel and his friends are in exile in Babylon. Keep that in mind. And Babylon is the code name that John gives Rome in the book of Revelation. Daniel and his friends refuse, in the king's service, they refuse to eat the rich food and, the, and drink the wine that the king wants them to have. And so Daniel asks the guard who's in charge of them, he says, let us eat only vegetables and drink water. Guess for how long? Ten days. For 10 days. And at the end of the 10 days, if we're healthier, then we can continue to do this. We don't have to eat the king's food. If we're not, then you can change your mind. And Daniel and his friends do so, and at the end of the 10 days, they are healthier, and they pass the test. They were tempted to compromise their faith in this 10-day period, but they passed the test. The 10 days Jesus refers to in Revelation may be meant to remind people of the Smyrna church, of Daniel's faithfulness when tested under the thumb of an oppressive empire. Now, prison cells in ancient Rome were dismal and frightening. Prisoners might be kept in shackles in a dark, cramped room with no window. It's easy to see how the threat of imprisonment might tempt some Christians to compromise or even to renounce their faith in order to avoid something like this. But after 10 days, charges might be dropped or... Something worse might happen. They might die. And so we come to the challenge. Regardless of the outcome, the challenge from Jesus is that they are to be faithful even to the point of death. Even to the point of death. Because as we're going to see in the next word to the church in Pergamum, sometimes persecution ends in death. Some of these sisters and brothers in Smyrna, and to some degree all seven churches, are facing what we might call a no-win situation. 
looked at one way, this is exactly what's going on. If they compromise their faith, they lose. But if they keep their faith and go to prison, they lose. It seems like a no-win situation. But Jesus would agree with Captain Kirk on this one. I don't believe in a no-win scenario. But something about this doesn't look right to me. Wait, I know what it is. That's better. <laughs> it was just a matter of time, people. I'm going to move on to the next thing. In all seriousness, winning looks different in the kingdom of God. And it did for Bonhoeffer under the empire of Nazi Germany. He put it this way. Whenever Christ calls us, his call leads us to death. Whenever Christ calls us, his call leads us to death. I bet nobody's ever used that as an evangelistic pitch. The kind of persecution that leads us to death is not a reality most of us at ECC have or ever will face. But it's good to be reminded that while exact numbers are not easy to pin down, conservatively, since the time of Jesus, somewhere between 50 and 70 million Christians have been put to death for their faith. Bonhoeffer's words turned out to be literal for him as well. He was put to death in a concentration camp on April 9, 1945. This, this call that leads to death, however, can be played out every day in other ways. In Luke 9, 23-24, Jesus says this to his uh, disciples. He says to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. Jesus, Jesus' words there in Luke 9 point to his own literal death and the deaths of all who have been or will be martyred for their faith. But those words also speak to a spiritual reality. There is a death that manifests itself differently in servanthood, in humility, in compassion, in submission, in self-denial, and in suffering in non-literal ways as well. Daily. There must be another dimension to a life of self-denial and cross-bearing that Jesus is after because we can't, we can't die literally every day. This speaks of the call of everyday discipleship in our situations. We're where, wherever the metaphor fits, we should wear it. Every day, we can practice humility, we can practice servanthood, we can practice self-denial with one another and in the world. Even if we are facing literal death, as was the church in Smyrna, potentially, Jesus says, be fearless and be faithful. Be fearless and be faithful. And if those words can apply to them in their situation, they most certainly can apply to anything you and I might face today. Be fearless and be faithful. The challenge for us all is to be fearless and faithful, regardless of the nature of the cross we carry, whether it's literal or metaphorical. So let's read the last part of verse 10 and then verse 11. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. So there are two parts to this last component of this prophetic word, 
of the conqueror's promise. And Jesus, like a good friend, keeps his promises. Those who suffer and even die will receive life. And they will not be hurt at all, not be harmed by something called the second death. First, the life we are promised is pictured as a crown. The crown is not the Burger King crown that you might be thinking of. It's the victor's crown. It's a wreath. It could be literally branches with leaves on it, or it might be gold-fashioned to look like it. And it, it, is, it relates to three different spheres, um, athletics, the military, and public service. It is a wreath of accomplishments. It is a, a wreath of victory. And so it's time for fun with words. The Greek word for crown is Stephanos. Last week I told you that the name Nicholas, Nikao, from which the Nicolaitans get their name, is a name that means he conquers people or conquers. Here we have the two Greek words from which we get the names Stephanie and Nick. According to my calculations, this would mean that Nick and Stephanie Rambo are ECC's power couple. <laughs> oh, I couldn't wait to do that. Okay. Again, some things I can't just keep up there all the time. Uh, we who conquer, again, not conquering other people, but conquering our fear of suffering and death, we will receive life, eternal, abundant, resurrection, life. We, like Jesus, conquer by being faithful and fearless in the face of persecution and suffering and, if necessary, dying. This does not mean that we all have to suffer and die in the way many of these early Christians did. But we are called and we are empowered to be faithful no matter what we face and of course we like jesus will rise again not only will we rise again but we will not be harmed be harmed by something jesus refers to as the second death the first death is our natural death the second death is judgment day the first death is our natural death the second death is judgment day we who have conquered and have not renounced our faith in Jesus, even in the face of tremendous opposition, will not be harmed by the second death. Skipping ahead. Revelation 20, verse 6. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them. You share in the first resurrection if you have faith in Jesus. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. We don't know all that that means yet, and honestly, by the time we get to that, we still may not know all that this means. But what we do know is that according to this part of the conqueror's promise, we will receive the crown of eternal, abundant, resurrection life, and we need not ever fear judgment again. What are you and I supposed to do with this Prophetic word to the church in Smyrna, late in the first century. Again, not forgetting those who still face this kind of persecution today. What are we, who are a part of ECC, to do with this word today? What is the Spirit saying to this congregation, to this community of faith, to you as an individual? 
There are many ways to suffer today, big and small. We can suffer inconveniences and setbacks and frustrations, of course. We suffer sickness and loss and broken relationships, divorces, wayward children and the pain of death. We suffer loss of jobs and dying dreams and difficult co-workers and bosses. I mean, the list can go on and on and be seemingly endless of the kind of suffering that we who live on this planet before the new heavens and the new earth come to us that we can suffer. It could be seemingly endless. Jesus' call to fearlessness and faithfulness for the believers in Smyrna is also a call for us. And the promise Jesus makes to all who endure, to all who conquer, to all who are victorious, is made to you and to me as well in whatever suffering or loss or brokenness we face. Jesus will keep his promise. In fact, he already has. I'm going to invite the band to come on up as we get ready. In the middle of the book of Revelation, there is a scene that sounds like it's describing something off in the future somewhere. It is fantastical and full of images and allusions to the Old Testament and to ancient mythologies. It is Harry Potter and the Lord of the Rings and Star Wars all rolled into one. Now, there is a whole lot going on in the passage I'm about to read to you. But I want you to listen in particular for how this cosmic drama speaks of things that have already happened, even while they also may be alluding to something that is yet to come. Listen as I read for how it speaks to things that have already happened, even as it points toward the future and things yet to come. And as I read... There's a lot of imagery in this. Do not try to figure it all out. I mean, that's like telling you not to think about an elephant. But do not try to figure it all out. Listen for the phrases, for the scenery, for the images that sound familiar to you and ask why that is. What does that call to mind? And what is it trying to say? What do the familiar parts speak of? Revelation 12, 1 through 12. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its heads. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth, and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God, 
and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. The promise is that Jesus has already defeated the dragon, Satan. By his death, his resurrection, and his ascension, he now reigns over everything. And though the dragon may thrash around and try to convince us otherwise, his time is short. He has been defeated. If we are to be fearless and and faithful in the face of whatever suffering comes our way, then we would do well to remember this piece of good news. Jesus Christ has already won the victory. Jesus Christ has already won the victory. And though the dragon may try to cause us to believe otherwise, his time is short. And he knows it. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Would you pray with me? Good and gracious God, we thank you for this reality that you have already won the battle that our victory is secure that our crown is secure that our life is secure we thank you for this reality help us oh god to live into that to celebrate it cause it to bring us joy and faith and a nobility lord god to do all you call us to do and as we consider this in our situation lord we are mindful of people right now the world over who are suffering persecution because of their faith. Lord, help them to stay strong. Lord, help them to get a vision of the victory they've won. And Lord, push back the forces of darkness and evil that persecutes them. Bring victory that is coming in the future into the present, we pray. We ask all of this in Jesus' name.